You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, we'll start in 24. This is right after a section we know fairly well about walking in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Paul would say, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you should also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of you examine his own work, then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. So Paul here is speaking these Galatian believers about walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. He points out the negative things about walking in the flesh and what that looks like. And he points out the positive things, the fruit of the spirit and what that would look like. And then he encourages them that if they're doing this, if they're walking in step with the spirit in 26, to let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, moving into chapter 6 then, the context becomes a spirit-filled life is not just one in relation to ourselves individually, where me and my room alone, although that's part of it, but he extends that then and says the spirit-filled life will also be in relation to one another, to the church, to the other believers in Christ that are around us, so we are not to be, as he says, becoming conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And he understands that as we seek to live a spirit-filled life in the context of the church with other believers, nobody is going to do that perfectly. We are going to run into sin, into the flesh. And what he wants to do now is instruct how to Christians deal with other Christians in sin because that's going to happen. We should not be shocked. Sometimes we can act shocked uh, when other Christians sin or are caught up in sin or sin against us, but we shouldn't be. And Paul here is going to give us in six, right down to five there, and he, he adds on more, but an important segment and instruction on, all right, how do we deal with other believers in sin? How, how do we respond? Now, I will say this is not the only passage in the Bible that talks about how to deal with other believers in sin. There are other passages, but it is one of the main passages, and it gives us some real instruction for something that is going to happen to all of us, and if God tarries, will continue to happen. And how can we then live spirit-filled lives and respond the way that God would want us to? Well, let's look again at verse 1. Brethren of chapter 6, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Notice the first thing Paul recognizes is that these Galatian believers are brethren. Again, in the earlier chapter, the context was one another, one another. It's going to continue here as one another bear one another's burdens. When we step into a situation where we see another brother or sister in Christ and sin, it's important to note that they are a brother or sister in Christ. We're supposed to recognize other believers who sin as brothers and sisters in Christ and treat them accordingly. And I think the problem is sometimes we can look at people in sin and just blow them off as knuckleheads or whatever, or we can look at people in sin and maybe some of the hard, hardline lordship salvation people will just say, well, they're not even really saved, or we can, we can find a way to kind of escape it, or maybe we just even isolate ourselves from them, try to get away from some other believer in sin. But what Paul says right off the bat and what the Bible teaches us is, no, these people need to be seen as brothers and sisters in Christ if they claim Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a man in the church who's in pretty gross sexual sin, and Paul considers him a believer. He never questions his salvation. He treats him as a believer, even to the point of church discipline. And in 2 Corinthians, he has to write, as he writes back to the church, this man has repented. He has to tell them, now bring this man back. Restore him. Don't let him be overly grieved now that he's repented of his sin. And it's important for us when we see other people's sins, particularly other believers' sins, we should not look at them as incurable. And we should not see them uh, as things that we're trying to distance ourselves from. As Christians, we are our brother's keeper. Every single one of us is supposed to be caring about the other people around us for the very good reason that they're our eternal brother or sister in Christ. Everybody in this room should care about the walk of everyone else in this room. It is not easy to be a Christian nowadays. It's not easier in our country, and it's not getting any easier. And People all around us can walk away from the Lord, and we should all be concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God and being a part of the work that God is doing in their lives, even if it involves a dealing with sin or a correction or instruction or rebuke, as Paul is talking about here. But we can't just see them as random individuals. There are brethren And we need to see them that way as we step in. The second thing we notice about this correction is it's supposed to come, notice, when a man is overtaken in a trespass, overtaken, falls alongside of, falls into, however this sin comes into our lives, it's a trespass. It's a a sin. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5 said we were dead in our sins. It's the same word there you and I, before we were saved. Jesus was delivered in Romans 4 for our offenses, the same word here. Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says that we should pray that we are forgiven and commands us both to forgive others from sins, same word. And James 5, where he says, confess your faults to one another, same word, our sins, our faults, one to another. So, 
I think it's important to note, when we are correcting a believer, another brother or sister in Christ, we are correcting them of sins, not preferences. It's my preference that no one in this sanctuary wear a Dallas Cowboys jersey. (laughs) But I don't have the authority to sit them down and say, you're in sin. You shouldn't, thou shalt not wear... Do you understand? There's, and there's plenty of times where we could come to scenarios and you try to correct somebody or have a conversation with, well, I feel or I think, or people aren't supposed to come into line with our feelings and thoughts. They're supposed to come into line with God's feelings and thoughts. So when we're coming to correction or addressing a sin in another believer's life, we need to ask ourselves this, what sin am I correcting? What sin am I correcting? And if you can't figure it out, you probably need to back off a little bit. What sin am I correcting? It's a sin that we step into. Luke 17, 3, Jesus would say, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins, King James says trespass, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Pretty simple. If he sins against you, you rebuke him. And if he repents, you forgive him. It's the sin that we are addressing there. It's a brother or sister in Christ overtaken in a sin. The third thing we see, the goal there, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. The, the goal of this correction or instruction or addressing this thing is restoration, not castigation. And what I mean by that is we're not just there to defend our own reputation, We're not there to prove that they're wrong and we're right. We're not addressing these things to show them what's up or make an example of them. We address sin in other believers' lives because we want to restore them to the fullness and health of their walk in Jesus Christ. Because sin gets in the way. It pollutes, confuses, it deceives, it blinds. It leads us out of the way, to the left or to the right. And what we're doing is we're seeking to restore. The word has a context of mending fishing nets. It has a context of setting a bone that's broken. That's the idea kind of behind it. And what we're doing when we see this other believer caught in sin is we want to restore them to their life in Christ. That's my goal in bringing this correction and addressing this sin, whatever it is. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says this, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Why? Because people need to come to their senses. They need to acknowledge the truth and recognize they've been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. Unfortunately, I think all of us have too many friends that we would look at and say, Lord, I want that person to come to their senses. I I want them not to be caught up in the enemy's work to be captive at his will. I want them to be set free in you. That's the goal. That's what we're looking to accomplish in bringing this correction. If that's not the goal, 
we probably need to hold off. That's what God is calling us to. Fourth, how are we doing this? Notice, in a spirit of gentleness or meekness, it's most often translated. That's very important because we can do it in the wrong way. Today, I might be the one doing the correcting and helping with the restoration, but tomorrow, I might be the one receiving the correction and needing the restoration. How do I want it coming to me? It can turn very quickly. Obviously, we don't want to be mean-hearted in our correction, and harsh correction is something that people throw out there a lot. But really, it's a bit of a caricature. There are some of us who come from scenarios where people are very harsh and legalistic, and we face that. But the reality is, the common believer, if you're anything like me, most of us, our problem is not seeing a sin and boldly heading into it and being too harsh about it. Most of us, our problem is just trying to get away from the situation, not addressing anything at all. Uh, I do high school ministry here, and I've dealt with plenty of high schoolers through the years. And one of the things that will typically happen is a high schooler will say something along the lines of, my parent yelled at me. Now, a lot of their parents I know to be actually very mild-mannered, And if I say something like, man, that really surprises me that your parent yelled at you in that scenario, explain to me what that was like. A lot of times the conversation will go something like, well, I mean, they didn't like yell at me. They took me out to eat and talked to me. (laughs) AKA, of course, yelled at me. Because a lot of us just like, some high schoolers can, we, we make any type of correction this harsh thing that's possibly happening to us, even when it's not. And the reality is, I think particularly in our culture, we fear to correct people because correction involves judgment, right? We're saying one thing's right and another thing's wrong. And of course, in our culture, all, all judgment is harsh. All correction, therefore, is harsh. And if we're harsh, we are not understanding, and that is the sin of our day. If you are not understanding, then you're unforgiving and bigoted. So what do we do? Well, we want to forgive, not be bigoted, by ignoring wrongs with a hands-off fashion, and therefore we seem understanding and not judgmental. Unfortunately, in our, for our modern culture, the Bible doesn't state that all behavior is simply to be understood. That's not what God says. God understands human behavior better than any human does, because he's our creator. And he says that some behavior, sinful behavior, is to be corrected or reproved or rebuked or instructed. And it's supposed to be done in a particular way, not harsh. Sometimes as Christians, we could be overly harsh. Not harsh, in a spirit of meekness, but still corrected. Finally, notice he says, who is supposed to do this? Who is supposed to do the correcting? You who are spiritual seek to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Uh, To recognize spiritual maturity isn't pride. It's not pride to say one person's more physically mature than another. There are plenty of saints who have walked with the Lord for a long time. 
Uh, you can recognize spiritual maturity. Even days lived isn't always distance traveled. You can recognize spiritual maturity in all different types of ages. We need spiritually mature people in the church. Uh, to think of ourselves as more mature than we are is pride. But to recognize that somebody has some spiritual maturity is not a pride thing. And Paul says the spiritually mature people should be correcting. They should be recognizing these things. Now, sometimes God brings correction out of totally crazy arenas, right? That's, that can happen. He can have an unsaved person look at you and say, I thought you said you were a Christian. Or a little kid can correct you. Or Balaam's donkey shows up and starts talking to you. God could do whatever he wants, okay? So there are some strange ways correction comes to people, and that's up to the Lord. But in, in the common manner of things, usually it's a spiritually mature person who's speaking into the life of another person who might be a little less spiritually mature. And the reality is it takes some spiritual maturity to even see a brother or sister in sin, let alone lovingly correct them in meekness and seek to restore their position while refraining from, notice, temptation. We have to consider yourselves lest you also be tempted. Because there's a lot of temptation to these things. We could do it the wrong way. Matthew 18, we should know that. If you're in a situation where you need to correct others, you should know Matthew 18 if we approach the situation the wrong way. We could be unbalanced. Certainly, we could be too lenient. Treating sin like it isn't sin isn't godly. And we could be overly heavy-handed. Neither of those is godly. Fenelon, a writer, would say this about being heavy-handed. The more you selfishly love yourself, the more critical you will be. Self-love cannot forgive the self-love it discovers in others. Nothing is so offensive to a haughty, conceited heart as the sight of another one. That's convicting. Thank you. But on the other side of that, obviously we, we can't run away from things. And Jesus, again, is always the perfect example of this. His, his disciples are in the storm and they're freaking out. And he gets up and he rebukes them for their little faith. But he also calms the storm. The situation when he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9. They have a son there who is demon-possessed, and they can't cast out the demon. They finally bring him to Jesus, and Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then he casts them out, but he rebukes them for their faithlessness. How many times did he correct his disciples along the way? How many times did he rebuke the Pharisees? Not because he was angry. He didn't lose his temper. Because they needed a stern rebuke, and it was the only thing they could hear. How many times did he enter into humanity, and he knew he was going to have to give a correction? He did that because he loved these individuals. He didn't let anything slide. But he didn't run from it either. We always talk about Jesus, or people talk about Jesus sinning and eating with sinners. He sat with sinners to call them to repentance. Oh, we tend to, we want to kind of get away from them, or, or we want to enter in with sinners and we don't call them repentance. Jesus did the actual hard thing. That's what makes him amazing. He sat with sinners and then rebuked their sin. He sat at Matthew's table and said, don't you know I'm here to call sinners to repentance? He called everybody at the table a sinner. He, he could step in and lovingly respond 
but never let anything slip by. He was so gracious in the way he approached it. He was obviously the most spiritual mature. And there are temptations, and it takes a measure of spiritual maturity to correct others without giving them pride or gossip or mockery and making fun of them, rejoicing in their dilemmas. These things are all wrong. So that's why he calls us that are spiritually mature to live in the body of Christ and to deal with these things, to bear all things. The Bible says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The good in Jesus just kept overcoming the evil that was in them, his own disciples included. So patient, so forbearing, but so direct in his dealing with things. So you and I who are spiritual are supposed to step in. Now, that doesn't give you an out because some of you are like, well, I'm not that spiritual. I don't have to do anything. There's all different levels to these things. Just because you don't think you're the most spiritual person in the room, right? Somebody who's 18 can correct somebody who's 14. You don't don't have to be the most spiritual person in your mind to be a part of this. Paul is talking to the Galatian believers who had a whole lot of issues themselves. This is for all of us. It's a scenario we're going to come into because we live in the body of Christ and we have brothers and sisters and none of them are perfect, including us. And so it's important that we recognize what he's called us to. Do I see my brother and sister in Christ's burden with sin? What sin am I correcting? How am I seeking to restore them to Christ through my correction? Can I do so gently without pride or anger or gossip? That's the scenario here. Look at 2 and 3. He adds to this, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The point is, we're all called to do this. We're all called to bear one another's burdens. And it's a law. So fulfill the law of Christ. It's not an option here. Part of fulfilling the law of Christ is correcting one another in the spirit. The law of Christ is chapter 5, verse 14. Paul mentions all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ is John 13, 34 and 35. He says, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you love one another. They're supposed to love one another, but to love one another the way he loved was a new commandment. And by this, all men shall know that you're my disciples. This is how people are going to tell that there's a reality of you following me, this type of love. And a spirit-filled life to really love others involves caring about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in sin more than we care about ourselves and what we'll look like if we say something and to say it in the right way. And we can't, notice he says in three, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We can't think that we're above this correction or above needing to help. We're not so special or holy that we're above this command, either to receive or to give. Again, Jesus wasn't called to live in the world unburdened with other people's sins. He entered into the world to be burdened with our sin. And sometimes we just want to enter in the world, right, unburdened from other people's sins. We just want to stay away from everything. But that's not what love looks like. Sometimes it's wise in various ways. 
But a lot of times, that's not what love looks like in the family of God. And if we're overly sensitive to correction, it just proves how much we really need it. We can't think too highly of ourselves. And our sin that we're being corrected of should sting more than the correction itself. If the correction stings more than the sin, that just shows how much we have a problem. He has to step in. We can't allow that correction that we need in our lives to escape or not to jump in and be a part of it. Can't allow our love for reputation to embitter us to it. It's one of the ways that God loves us. If I think back in my own life to some of the most important conversations that I've had, Definitely some of them were in relation to correction, things I needed to be corrected in. I would dare say that a humble man or woman may even come to love correction. I think David is the perfect example of this. David was a man who lived a remarkable life and did his fair share of correcting others. In fact, David had one relative of his who wanted to murder people all the time. His name was Abishai. And he was like, can I kill him? Can I kill him? And David had to say, no, you can't kill him. And then somebody else would do something. Can I chop his head off? No, you can't chop his head off. David had to correct him numerous times. Maybe that's applicable. We are in Philadelphia. Some of you might have friends that want to kill somebody. And you need to say no to them. That's kind of only half of a joke. Because uh, there, there are some scenarios where you might find yourself in like that. That said, there was a scenario in David's life where he wanted to murder somebody, a man named Nabal, who bothered him quite a bit. And he went to go murder this individual. And God sent Abigail to him to point out to him in a wise way how foolish it would be for him to go do what he was thinking of doing. And David, when he received that correction, recognized he came to his senses realized he was caught in the snare of the devil about to accomplish his will, and he blessed her. And he married her later. <laughs> you can read the story on your own. But, but he, was not, he was not put off or embittered by that correction. He received it. It was one of the unique things about David. He received that correction, and he embraced it. He saw it as God's work in his life. Proverbs 25, 12 says, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuke to an obedient ear. The wise man can receive that correction. He wears it like an earring. Not trying to hide it. He's, he's proud of it. He receives it. He receives it like it's God's love in his life to keep him from foolishness. So we all need to be corrected by others, but nobody wants to do it. So if we all need it and no one wants to do it, we should actually be very grateful for the people in our life that would love us enough to say something. And we should be that type of person in others' lives that love them enough to say something. A lot of us, we're not happy in the moment, and it does sting. But maybe later we need to go back and say thank you. Maybe we don't have the humility that David had to say thank you right away. But our strengths are meant to make up the weaknesses of others. We can't be shocked again when we find sin in the body of Christ. Paul the Apostle 
had to correct and rebuke Peter the apostle. Everybody wasn't sitting around saying, oh man, he must not even be an apostle anymore. Can't believe that this guy's imperfect. Now, that, that happens to us. We get shocked. I thought these people were supposed to be Christians. No, there's only one Savior who's perfect. And the rest of us are happy that he works in our lives and gives us grace. And he allows us then to walk with him, although he corrects us and points out what we need. We can't pull up the wheat with the tares. So we can't hide our burdens from others. Sometimes we're tempted to, uh, you know, we're struggling in one area. Our marriage is struggling. We don't want to be corrected, so we don't say anything. And eventually it just falls apart. We have, we're struggling with alcohol and other people don't know. And we don't say anything or... Looking at pornography and other people don't know, we don't say anything because we're afraid of correction. We're afraid of having somebody else bear that burden with us. We need to be humble enough to allow others to speak into our lives. That's what we're called to do. And that love, when it's expressed in the right way, as Paul's talking about here, is part of our testimony to the world around us. It's how people tell that we're his disciples. Paul was a unique a unique example of carrying his own burdens. There's a place for that. Casting his burdens on the Lord. There's a place for that. But then sharing his burdens with others. Literally allowed people to put their lives on the line for him. Be thrown in jail for him. Die with him. A unique way. He, he had a wonderful balance in this. Now, in 4 and 5, he says this. But let each one examine his own work. Then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load or his own burden. The idea here is this. Paul isn't contradicting himself. He's speaking about the types of burdens that we can share and the types of burdens that we can't share. Uh, the word for burden there in verse 2 in the Greek is different than the word in verse 5. They're two different words. The first is more of a heavy load, and the second is more of a man's pack, something that a man would carry himself. Uh, some people don't see much of a difference there in the Greek, but I think it would be short-sighted to say Paul, who was writing this and understood his context, didn't use those two words on purpose. And what he's saying is there's a warning here to not look around at the people around us and measure our need for correction or for God's work in our lives based on how other people look like they need help. Because right? one of the main things that happens when you correct somebody is usually an excuse is, yeah, but I know like 20 other people who are doing the same thing. You get pulled over in a speed trap. You're annoyed because everybody else is zooming by, right? How come they're not getting a ticket? Now, that has nothing to do with the fact that we were speeding, but what about them too? And one of the things we want to do is we want to look at everybody else and say, well, look at all these other people. They're more messed up than I am. Or how come they're getting away with it? How come I have to be corrected and they don't have to be corrected? And what Paul is saying is that, that has nothing to do with you and your burden. We're not supposed to measure our need for correction by the need for correction in other people around us. 
Paul would say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And his point is basically this. Everyone will have to bear his own burden before God, which is his own responsibility. Nobody can share that burden with you. David was going to be responsible for his actions. Abigail wasn't. She was just a messenger. If David knocked her over and went in and murdered Nabal, he was responsible. He bore his own responsibility for his own actions. And just because we're called to correct people, it's not up to us to work the situation out. Some people are going to blow off correction. But the warning here is, if you're a person who thinks, well, I don't care about correction. I don't care what another human being tells me. I don't care what you think about that situation. I'm just going to keep doing whatever. Okay, that works until you meet God. And if God is using that individual in your life, you should listen because he's the one who you're really responsible to. He's the one you're accountable to. And one day, when we all stand before God, we will carry our own burden, our own pack, our own responsibility. And the adoration of men will be over. People can clap for things that we do wrong. People, we can always find a group to commend us for something all over the place. But one day when we stand before God, it will be what the old writers call vain glory. Glory that doesn't actually get us anything doesn't last. Don't look for vain glory among men. We want the praise of God. And what we have to do is not look at other people. There needs to be a healthy introspection in our own lives. We want to have our own work dealt with. The best way really for me to help others is to take God's correction in my own life as it comes and allow that to happen daily. Now, in saying that, we're not supposed to be trespass hunters. I don't want everybody to get up here today and look around and say, who needs it? Right? Let me look around. Somebody out here I know needs to get it. Uh, that's, that's not what we're supposed to do, okay? That's not what I'm saying. My point is this. In life, in the body of Christ, as we love and live with God's people, as things come to us, we can humbly and simply deal with them. We're not out there fault-finding and searching, Okay? We have plenty enough, I think, to have situations just find us. God puts us there. He puts a specific thing on our heart. Like, there's enough in life to come to these situations and deal with them as they come. We don't have to be searchers here for these things. The key is, again, we need to be loving and bear burdens in meekness. Not turning away from them loving enough to correct somebody because we love them and not ourselves. When I love myself, I turn away. This is convicting for me. I'm a pastor. You, you realize you do get tired of correcting people sometimes. <laughs> but the Bible commands us. I'm sure Jesus got tired of dealing with people. The Bible commands us to love as Jesus loved. And I can't just turn away and ignore I should care about my brothers and sisters in Christ, care enough to say something, 
Now the results are in his hands, but I'm the messenger. Abigail cared enough to say something. You and I need to care enough to say something. Paul cared enough to say something to Peter. Aquila and Priscilla cared enough to say something to Apollos. We need to care enough about our brothers and sisters in Christ to say something when we need to say something. We say it the right way. And then we need to submit ourselves to God's work when he brings that into our lives, when it comes into our lives the correct way. We know there are wrong versions of this, but we're talking about the correct version. When it comes into our life the correct way, we need to submit ourselves to God and humble ourselves. Maybe some of us need to go apologize to somebody who corrected us in the last day or two and we didn't like it very much. And we're part of God's work in our lives. I'm going to end with this. F.W. Borum tells this story in one of his books by way of illustration. He says, it would be easy to demonstrate by a score of examples the operation of this intricate law in everyday life. There is, for example, the story of the Haldanes. In his early years, James Haldane commanded a man of war, the Melville Castle. One day, in the heat of action, he ordered a fresh set of men to take the places of those who had been killed by a broadside from the enemy. The men seeing the mangled bodies of their comrades, instinctively recoiled and shrank back. James Haldane poured forth a volley of oaths and included a terrible and blasphemous prayer. A Christian seaman, whose name nobody knows, went straight up to his captain and respectfully but fearlessly asked him how he would like his awful prayer to be literally answered. The captain was smitten through and through. From that day, he was a changed man, and he lived for 54 years to preach the gospel. His own brother, Robert, who all the world knows as an able and learned commentator, was one of the first fruits of his ministry. Robert, in turn, went to Geneva, and while there was the means of the conversion of a band of young men, which included Felix Neff, the enthusiastic evangelist of the High Alps, Merrill Dobbins, the, the historian of the Reformation, and Frederick Menard, one of the pillars of the evangelical church in France. And so, the action of a quiet, able-bodied seaman in rebuking his captain's blasphemy by an indirect but distinctly traceable line of influence shook all of Europe and still moves the world. You never know how far God can use a moment of love and correction the right way and what he can do with it in a person's life. And thank God that Jesus Christ came and was willing to bring correction to all of our lives so that we could be restored to him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your patience with us, your forbearance, your willingness, Lord, to just continually pour out your love on us and in us. So, Lord, I pray that you fill us with your spirit, that we could walk in the spirit and love one another in a way that's truly honoring to you and lord that we can care for one another in the right way in this day and age where it's not easy to be the family of god so lord you know what that looks like in all of our lives i pray that we could be obedient sons and daughters 
We pray in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.